This episode of The Vincast is proudly supported by Different Drop, an online retailer focusing on Australian wines of provenance, authenticity and innovation. The guys from Different Drop have uh, very lovingly taken the time and research to uh, find some of the most beautiful and authentic wines you can find in Australia. And, uh, and they've put together all on a wonderful website, differentdrop.com. Uh, if you have a look there, they've got a wide range of wines and also they've got some mixed packs or you can put together your own and, uh, and have it shipped out to you in the quickest of times. They've got very competitive pricing. They've got some really fantastic information on there. And you can even find uh, wines from some of the previous guests of the Vincast, including Franklin Estates, uh, Chalmers, Foster Rocco, Brash Higgins, Unico Zello, Luke Lambert and many more. You can help support the Vincast by going to differentdrop.com and when you place your first order over $100, simply enter the code VINCASTVINO and the guys from Different Drop will very generously take $25 off your bill. So go to differentdrop.com today and, uh, and when you do get your order and your handwritten note, make sure to share it on social media and, uh, and, and share the love with the Vincast. On episode 56 of the Vincast, I chat with Campbell Burton, the sommelier of the Builders Arms Hotel in Fitzroy, and also one of the organisers of the Soulful Wine event being held on the 5th of July here in Melbourne. I've also got a question for you at the end of the episode, so stay tuned. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome back to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Kessbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and I've got a bit of a special uh, release uh, for this episode uh, a little bit early. Um, I wanted to get this one out a bit quicker because uh, my guest uh, is one of the organisers of the Sulphur Wine event being held in Melbourne on the 5th of July, uh, which I did mention on the previous episode with uh, with Morgan McLone. Again, thank you for all those who listened and uh, and uh, shared their enjoyment. Um, so, yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, Campbell Burton is the sommelier of the Builders Arms Hotel in Fitzroy, uh, and he clearly has a, a real passion for wines of authenticity and uh, low intervention uh often referred to as natural wine. So um, I thought it would be really interesting to chat with him in the lead up to the sulfur wine event, which is uh, dedicated to wines with no additional sulfur, but there's also going to be some fantastic chefs uh, involved with that, including uh, Josh Murphy, the chef at the Builders Arms, and of course, Morgie, uh, my previous guest. Um, just I wanted to quickly put it out there that um, actually would be great for people to jump onto my YouTube channel uh, if you put in Intrepid Wino uh, and subscribe because um, soon I'm going to be putting up some uh, more videos of tastings and uh, I'd love to get some feedback on that. So uh, please do that. Uh, enjoy the episode and I'll see you on the other side. Campbell, thank you very much for making some time in your, I'm, I'm sure, very busy schedule to, <laughs> to sit down on the Vincast. Uh, and um, I always ask the same question. Yep. Inside of every episode, what was the first interaction you had with wine that kind of made you think that that was something you wanted to do as far as a career or got you passionate about wine? Do you remember? I My interest was first peaked working in a couple of restaurants in New Zealand and Australia, but first in 2002 and 2003. But then properly, properly I became interested when I was offered a spot to do vintage uh, at a friend's winery in central Spain, just north of Madrid. Oh, wow. Yeah, she was a really good friend who I met when I was... I, I lived in New Zealand for a couple of years, and I met her uh, through friends and family. Her name's Amy Hopkinson, and she's uh, an, an extraordinary person. She's a couple of years older than me, um, and she went to university to study winemaking at Lincoln in the South Island of New Zealand. Um, and then that's when I first knew her. Anyway, a couple of years later, she was offered a job to begin a brand new winery and a brand new project in a really small village called Bienaueba de Campion, 
which is about two and a half hours northwest of Madrid. Uh-huh. Uh, and at the time, I was working, doing a traveling job, basically building grain silos in Austria and Germany. And she sent me an email saying, because we'd spoken about it the year before, about me potentially going to do vintage there. She said, oh, this year I really want you to come. So that was 2005. So I started, it was a long, long, long harvest. Uh, I was there for about five months. Mm-hmm. And I had an extraordinary time, but like a really, really, really amazing time. I uh, learned a phenomenal amount. We crushed about 50 tons, I think, from memory that year. Mm-hmm. And uh, predominantly Tempranillo, like 98% Tempranillo. We were working, not that I knew what this meant at the time, but we were working with lots of old, like extraordinary prephyloxera vines, really, really beautiful sandy soils, and uh, working with amazing fruit. So had you had much kind of connection with wine before that? Not really, not properly, no. What, what, what were you doing before? before uh, kind of I did two and a half years of law okay. at university. Yep. And then I did a couple of polo seasons in New Zealand. Polo? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, my two stepbrothers have got a polo operation um, just outside Auckland. Okay. You're from New Zealand originally? No, no, from northern New South Wales originally. Okay. Uh, how did you end up? How, or you're the as, as they are, my two stepbrothers. Um, right. They began this operation about 18 years ago, I suppose, and they went to New Zealand in the first place because that's where some of the world's best thoroughbreds are. Sure. And so, yeah, I left university after two and a half years and I was never going to be a solicitor. Uh, not, not at one stage during my university years that I think I was going to be a lawyer. Um, uh, yeah, so it was a travelling job, right. basically. Okay. And then in 2005, I caught a cargo plane with their horses to the UK for the first time. And then that's where I got the job building grain silos. So I did that for a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I started just south of London and then went to Hamburg and then went to a really, really, really small village uh, in remote Austria mm-hmm. and then went to Spain for the first year. Was it work or would, would you have the kind of the intention of doing some travel around Europe as well? That was just travel, basically, but okay. I needed to make money on the side. Sure, sure. So, yeah, uh, that was an extraordinary time unto itself. We were working seven days a week and working really, really hard. Yeah. And uh, But, yeah, I got to Spain in... Um, September, uh, early September in 2005, mm-hmm. and yeah, learned a lot that first year. Mm-hmm. And met some amazing people. I met, um, that's where I first met Belinda Thompson from Crawford River. Yeah. Uh, and, and various other people from, from the wine industry. Um, and not just Australians, we met lots of people from the UK and Spain, of course. And yeah, had an extraordinary time. And then I went back to the UK after that, uh, at about New Year's Eve, or just before New Year's Eve and Christmas. And then went back to Spain in 2006 and did vintage again. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my working visa for the UK expired. So halfway through 2007, I came back to Australia. And well, uh, you, you're from northern New South Wales. Yeah. Whereabouts? A really small town called Armadale. Oh, okay. Yep, Armadale. Yep. What, and what was your family business? What, what, what did your parents do? I grew up riding horses. Oh, okay. So they were involved. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So my father's a saddler. Sure. So he's got a saddlery business in the middle of town. Yeah. And uh, we always had horses running around, um, as did my stepbrothers. Sure. Obviously. Sure. Yeah. My parents uh, separated when I was about 11, I think, and my mother went to northern Queensland. Mm-hmm. And so I went to boarding school in Charters Towers mm-hmm. and then university in Townsville for the two and a half years. And uh, yeah, then decided to go traveling. So living in, or you know, Earlier on, um, and then I've sort of said Townsville as well. Um, living in the country, did it kind of give what? What, what sort of um, environment was it as far as food? And, and did you did your parents or, or step parents were they wine drinkers? I, I first started to learn about food when I was hanging out with Amy Hopkinson. Right. Okay. Yeah. And go. even before, and and with her family. Sure. Because um, we spent I spent a lot of time with her sister as well, uh, and they're all also involved in polo in New South in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, but they're super, super enthusiastic about food. Mm-hmm. And, of course, at university, I'd never really been exposed to this sort of thing. And, yeah, I learned a lot with them. But these are young, like, university people who are doing things like roasting mussels and using breadcrumbs and, uh, like, making delicious, delicious food and then rolling their own pasta. Mm. And, and even at that stage, talking about biodynamics and organics, um, it began there. And then, mm-hmm. of course, living with Amy in Spain, 
And again, we're back to during harvest, having Hamon sitting there for all of the harvest and Roland making your own pasta. I'd never really cooked myself at all until I got to Spain and started living with Amy. Mm -hmm. It gave you that kind of real appreciation for the source materials and, and, and what uh, you're always, actually working yeah, with I've, that you're going to then put into your body. For me, that's always very, very important because my mum's a remedial therapist. Okay. And so I've never, ever not been conscious of organics and doing the right thing in terms of how you're living and looking after yourself. Sure. Like it's always, since I was a little kid and my brother's the same, uh, that's always been on our minds. Like we've, we're never, ever not thinking about that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's been a focus my whole life, mm -hmm. or, always. Um, but yeah, in terms of food, it really, really began then. And then, then I moved to Melbourne and I'd never lived in Victoria before. And to see the difference... What was it that brought you here? I had to come back for a party in 2006. A friend got married and then I was invited to a party because I, I had a month at home uh, between jobs in the UK. And was invited to a party here in Melbourne. So I came down and had a week down here. And I'd never been, I'd never felt more at home in a city in Australia. Right. Ever. Yeah. And I thought if I've ever got to come back to Australia, this is where it'll be. I had zero doubt about it. Do you know, can you think about what it might have been about Melbourne that really appealed to you? Did you feel it sort of connected to you? Like in, in, I just, in I just walked European? around and I read, uh, I think I read like an article about rooftop bars or something in Gourmet Traveller before, <laughs> like on the train, because I caught the train from Armadale down for this party. Sure. And the energy in the city is quite different. As we all know, it's quite, I'm not saying it's better or worse, but it's quite different to anywhere else in Australia. Of course. And it just suits me down to the ground. Mm -hmm. And I... So, so you said when you were going to come back to Australia that you'd want to sort of settle in, in I wouldn't in hesitate, yeah, like, I thought like if I can't extend my visa for another little while in the UK and I've got to come back to Australia, then I have, I'll have zero hesitation about making a Melbourne, like none whatsoever. What sort of work are you doing in the UK? Hospitality. Okay. Yeah. And what, was, how did you find that experience? Uh, good. I learned a lot as well. Um, culturally, it's very different. Um, but worked in a couple of gastro pubs in Surrey, outside London. Sure. And worked with some really good people. Learned a lot about wine there between my two vintages in Spain. And that's probably, that was, so that was 2006. That's probably where I started reading a lot about wine, mm -hmm. like every day. Um, did you have much opportunity as far as traveling in Europe, perhaps? Did you go to any uh, wine regions whilst you were There was opportunity, but I didn't do it. I was working a lot. Sure. I was co-managing a venue and, sure. yeah, working a lot. And at that stage, I didn't really have any focus in terms of what I really enjoyed or, or stylistically what I found to be most suited to myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah. Yeah, it was good fun. Uh, so, so what, what did you, when you landed back in Melbourne in 2007, what, what was the, the first step? I spent some time catching up with friends and family for a month or so mm -hmm. and then applied for a job at the City Wine Shop. Really? Okay. Uh, and a really good friend of mine, like a very, very close friend, Gabrielle Poy, who's one of the key staff at the City Wine Shop and has been for years and years, she came and did vintage with us in Spain in 2006. Really? Okay. Yeah, so there was a connection there. Sure. Um, uh, and it's an amazing place to learn. Mm -hmm. it's, it's quite phenomenal. Mm. You get the chance to taste a lot, to read a lot, to spend a lot, your entire working, re working week around people who are also enthusiastic about wine. And food, I'm sure. Yeah. So you just absorb knowledge. It's, it's, so, yeah, I spent two years there and then I left for a little while and then came back and took over the retail job and was there for another two years uh, until coming to the Builder's Arms. Right. Yeah. And, and even, but, but even that sort of the first two-year stint, um, we were getting an opportunity to, to go to tastings and meet with... Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. Yep. You know, producers, distributors, importers, that kind of thing. Absolutely, yeah. There's a whole culture of uh, encouraging young staff to go to as many tastings as possible. Sure. Uh, and the culture there was pushed on at that stage by people like Sophie Otten. Mm -hmm. And then Sophie left. And then Luck Quash, who lots of people know, was responsible for the training. Uh, and he's been heavily influential on lots of people. Uh, A, because he's so enthusiastic himself. His knowledge is extraordinary. And he's, he's well-travelled. Well yeah, he's, 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 he's very, very well-travelled. Uh, he drinks very widely. Um, and he's aware of the importance of encouraging young people to learn and to take it upon themselves to do lots of extra guerrilla reading, to go to as many tastings, to drink as many bottles, to taste as many things. Uh, to put it in context, have it with food. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, luck. Uh, we all owe luck a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm, he's a great guy. And did you find yourself connecting more and more with lower, the wines with lower intervention or did you find yourself connecting with wines from absolutely. particular countries I, or regions? Uh, whether it's my personality or what, I'm not 100% sure, but even from the first time that I started reading about wines that were unfiltered, mm-hmm. for example, it caught my interest immediately. And then, Do you think that came from that sort of upbringing and, and the appreciation I, uh, for... I, I guess so. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I really, to this day, not 100% sure why, but for something to be untouched uh, has always intrigued me. Sure. Like, it really, really has. Sure. Um, but I'll never ever forget the first time that I went to the 1889 Enoteca in Gabba in Brisbane mm-hmm. and tasted a series of these wines over one dinner. I think it must have been in 2009 or 10, I guess. And because within the market in Australia, you don't, at that stage, you didn't have very much of an opportunity to taste wines like this. Right. But to taste something from Paolo Bayer or Frank Cornelissen or producers like this, and to taste this for the first time, I was mesmerized mm-hmm. like and i came back to melbourne after that trip to brisbane and all i wanted was to work with wines like this sure but i didn't so, want anything else did you find it difficult to kind of track these kind of wines down and source them because even yes, then it, yes you know, it was no, still I, kind of very very burgeoning movement yeah yeah totally uh we sold a few a few wines like this at the city wine shop sure um but then in terms of other retailers it's uh I know the Blackhearts at that time always sold a few, mm-hmm. but then I'll never forget the time that I went to London and went to Terroirs for the first time. Sure. And the guy there who's now wanting, running one of their other businesses sold me a bottle to take away of one of the Camillo Donati wines, mm-hmm. the Malvasia, mm-hmm. and I took it back and had it with my brother that night with our great aunt um, in London, and I, this is one of the greatest things I've ever tasted. And then I remember coming back and seeing it on the Lario website and I immediately had to buy a couple of bottles to have shipped down to mm. Melbourne. Mm. Uh, I was so proud to have them. I was so thrilled to see that they were in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been pursuing it from then, sure, basically. But it's interesting because the whole, in terms of communication being moved around about these sorts of producers and about these sorts of wines, it's not as if you have to look in the right places. Of course. Essentially. And talk and to the right and people. If, yeah, and if someone's not telling you where to look, then it's not immediate, immediately obvious. Well, you don't know me, what so, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And some of, for me, some of the, the, the most exciting and greatest wines on earth are made by people who have two hectares, sure. who don't have an email address, sure. who have zero interest in promoting themselves, who might go to one or two tastings a year, whether it's in Beaujolais or Paris, and then the wines sell out and they sell to one or two really great places in Tokyo and Paris and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. And so you don't hear about these things in Melbourne unless you're really, really, really talking to the other people who are interested or people indeed who are going to Paris four times a year. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the information's there if you're looking for it, but uh, it wasn't immediate, immediately obvious to me then. Now, you know, somewhat sort of still early stages of, of the movement uh, in terms of natural wine, um, both in terms of production in Australia and also in terms of it being imported. Um, it, I don't think it's really a, an accident that, so many of the great importers are based in Sydney because yeah. the Sydney movement sort of it, it really yeah. exploded from there. Did you did you go up to Sydney much in the, in in those days? And I, of- I remember the first time, and I've told this story here at the pub a few times when we speak about the impressions that a wine list can have on a customer. And after working at the City Wine Shop for at that stage, I think it had been two and a half years or thereabouts, and the first time that I went to Bentley mm. on Crown Street in Surrey Hills, and I opened the wine list and uh, at that stage I thought, oh, I, know, I, know, I know lots of labels in the world of wine and I knew nothing on the wine list. <laughs> uh, and it's a weird feeling. And I thought there's so much out there at the moment that I'm not even aware of. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I went to Sydney as, as much as I could afford, I guess. It's not as if we were doing it every month by any means. Um, well, I mean, it's an expensive city at the best of times. Yeah, and to go and do these sort of things costs costs a lot of money. When you uh, it costs a lot of money. Sure. Um, it's basically where all my money now goes. So. <laughs> uh, I don't think you're alone in that. Yeah. Uh, and we always talk about the fact that this happened really quickly in Sydney, and it's taking more time in Melbourne. Sure. 
and in my opinion, it's because Melbourne's surrounded by a few fairly significant wine areas. Of course. Uh, a lot of traditional growers and... And some very well-established importers as well. Yeah, absolutely. And some people who, from the previous generation, essentially. Exactly. Um, who have influenced writers, winemakers, sommeliers. Um, and subsequently consumers. Yeah. What I feel like there's been less of in Sydney is uh, this sort of group of people saying that uh, this particular paradigm is correct as opposed to incorrect. Sure. Um, I guess... And that's, and that's being broken down now in Melbourne. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing again. It's just the way that it is. I think, um, I think Adelaide is, is similar. You know, they're so close to wine regions. You know, there's some big... Uh, import is also based in Adelaide. You've got... I, I you believe know, that's easily as much of the case in Adelaide as yeah. it is here. Potentially even more. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm less familiar with the, with the drinking culture there and the, and the wine buying culture in Adelaide, but... That's but just just winemakers who might live yeah. in or around Adelaide coming in, and they kind of they might want to drink the same sort of stuff. Certainly, that they might they might make or that they're familiar with, and to sort yeah. of be introduced to something that's so different and so um, almost the opposite of the kind of wines that they're familiar with or that they make and are yeah. basically marketing and communicating about. It's sort of it, there is that sort of resistance where whereas with Sydney, because it's sort of there isn't that kind of same traditional wine culture and there isn't the same sort of industry. Like, there aren't really big Sydney-based wine importers like there are in, in Melbourne and in Adelaide, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, market-wise, I think uh, a lot of this is driven by, uh, and this is very much a human thing, when whether you're enthusiastic about... Uh, cars or art or water skiing or wine it's it's a it's a real human emotion to love the fact that you've got a bit of knowledge about something sure and then if you're presented with an alternative that you don't have knowledge about it's a bit scary of course and it's really easy to say that that scary thing that I don't know much about is wrong mm-hmm. because I've been told for the last 30 years that this particular example of art or water skiing is correct mm. So that basically means that the other examples are incorrect. Mm. And I prefer to believe that it's just different. Well, when you've you, got like... You've got one sort of art and you've got another sort of art. And it's okay to appreciate both. In the context of wine, when you've got people studying, it, like yeah. whether they're winemakers or wine marketers or... Uh, you know, I'm not as familiar with Wesset, but I don't know that in my experience doing the Masters at Adelaide Uni where we were doing, you know, sensory evaluation and we did a whole unit on faults. Mm. If I went back now and kind of looked at, looked at what we were being educated about faults, chances are I'd kind of say, oh, but, you know, I'd sort of see some of these characteristics and some of the ones that I really enjoy now. You're telling me that, that I'm wrong for enjoying that? You know, it, it's, it's, it seems a little bit arbitrary. Yeah, and for me... Uh, that whole structure of, of pigeonholing something that nature creates, mm. for me, that's a bit of an issue. Mm. And it's only really existed for a relatively short amount of time. And if you want to say that uh, volatile acidity or acetic acid or... Uh, a, a mousy uh, character. Yeah. Well, mousy fairly unpleasant, but um, <laughs> this is a paradigm that like, uh, people 50, 60 years ago said, this is correct, and anything outside this is incorrect. Mm. It hasn't existed forever. It's not as if 150 years ago, people were saying that this level of volatility, volatility or this level of this slightly high pH from a warm climate needs to be rectified with added acidity. Mm. People weren't saying that 150, 200 years ago mm. at all. And it was all, but it was all sort of tradition and, and just observation that was exactly you know forming their 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 opinions and, and, and their understandings of something. It wasn't there wasn't sort of yeah technology or science I'm, to I'm, kind of actually be able to understand it on a, on a, on a much more yeah specific level. I I love the direction that we're all taking at the moment, uh, or that lots of us are taking at the moment in embracing wine as a drink. Yeah. 
And if something has a little bit of lifted volatility, for me, it makes it a better drink. Mm -hmm. And sure, you can say that it's... It certainly makes it more interesting. Yeah, exactly. I love the notion of this fermented beverage being digestible and nourishing and having active bacteria. Mm. I feel very, very, very strongly about it. Mm. And I prefer not to look at this as something that we need to age for 55 years and sell for lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of money. Mm. It's a drink. Mm -hmm. And it's really okay to embrace it as such. Yeah. And for me, it makes much more sense as a drink and something that you're consuming if it's had nothing done to it and it's organic. I, I, I can't see any other way of looking at it. Like if you, if something wants to be made to be structured and to live for a long time, I view that more as, that's what, for me, that's what you do with a painting or a car or a building. But you don't do it with, like, with comestibles. I, I like the idea of revering wine for it culturally and what it is about it. You know, it's part of life. It's part of a meal. It's, it, you know, the, 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 the concept of sharing it, you mm. know, it's a convivial kind of experience, but I don't like the idea of revering it as you say, like, like a luxury product, you know, like, like elitist sort of thing, you know, you should appreciate something and say, this is amazing for what it is, you know, and I, I'm totally. enjoying this now and I'll remember that, but it's not like a trophy. It should make you feel lifted and good, yeah. basically. And I often use the example that we're very happy to say that we're happy for active bacteria to make an extraordinary cheese. Mm. And we're very happy to allow active bacteria to dry age our meat. We embrace that wholeheartedly. Sure. And the whole community is embracing fermented ginger and yogurt. Kombucha and stuff like Kombucha, that. Kombucha. Yeah. Lambic beer. Mm. All of this, if you looked at it in the context of wine, classical wine from 1950 to the year 2000, would be deemed to be faulty. Mm. All of it. Mm. Yet with every other food stuff, we embrace it. But with wine, we say it's faulty. Sure. And for me, that's a real issue. And yet nature allows us to ferment these beautiful organic grapes and turn it into something that is actually beneficial for your stomach. Yeah. And like, like for me, that is, that is what makes it delicious. Mm. And it's allowed, you're allowed to say it's delicious. You know, like it's okay to say that this wine that has alcohol in it is totally delicious. And I think what you're talking about there is some, another thing that kind of rankers with the, the established, you know, the this establishment, for lack of a better term, is like, you know, I remember people sort of complaining about the term smashable booze. You know, like, like, why is that such a bad thing? Like, why is it, you know, this is yum, it's just delicious, you know, and it sort of, it does in a way nourish you. Why, why does it have to be, take it so seriously all the time? Uh, yeah, it's, it, it, but it, take, it takes a long time to get to this point. And when, um, if all of your peers and what you've learned at university and everything that you read in magazines says one thing, it's really easy to believe that I, I can't believe in anything else mm. and I have to I have to acknowledge that everything within these walls is the correct thing. And I, I just think that it should be questioned. And The framework has been set out and this kind of thing doesn't necessarily fit into that framework. It's a totally different framework and so it's beyond yeah. people's... But the framework, the frameworks like that only exist because a charismatic person at the time said so. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason. Mm. Like someone came up with these rules. Sort of think and, and other people said, okay, cool. Well, that's correct then. Mm. And like, that's the way the world works. Sure, sure, sure. But for me personally, I'm driven by the fact that you, and it, it goes beyond wine, but like I really want people to look after themselves. And for me, it makes sense to eat living foods. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It makes your stomach healthier, it makes you live longer and like, it's very, very, very easy to enjoy wine but for me the tangible enjoyment that you get from having something that's alive mm. is, it's immeasurable. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that in terms of, of people sort of talking about having to do stuff like filtration or having to add sulfites, that kind of thing, means that They've taken something away from from that, or they've intervened in some way 
So they're saying that it now requires it. But if, if, if they're actually not intervening, if they're allowing it to find its own kind of natural balance and, and preserving itself, you know, because theoretically, like, that's what it's going to do. It's going to find a way to preserve itself and protect itself and provide the, the sort of elements that are, are going to be better for it and for the person who's going to drink it. Uh, yes, basically. I, within Australia, um, this sort of thing is very much in an early stage and I, I believe that people have to follow the way and do things the way that they want to do and the way that makes them happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great. And if someone has told you that uh, it's better to make wine like this and you feel great about doing it, and you're not using chemicals, well, I can't stand chemicals, then that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. It doesn't like, make I, sense. I, like, I, like some, there's so much wine consumed and people take such attention to, you know, about the food that they're eating or the water that they're, they're drinking, yeah. that kind of thing. You know, why wouldn't they sort of think about that with wine as well? Uh, I guess you know because they're not aware of an alternative, mm-hmm. by and large. Well, they're being told that the alternative is bad. Yeah. Um, did you sort of when you came on board with Builders Arms, did you sort of fairly have that that uh, that kind of philosophy fairly well formed, or well, did it all kind I of continue to, to evolve? Sell wine. Right. And so I had a meeting, and the pub was still a shell at that stage. Uh, and Anthony came to me and said, "We'd love to have you on board." So I had a meeting with Andrew and there were, there were builders going around the place and there was lots of noise and he just asked me a couple of frank questions like what do I really enjoy drinking, Sure. what my favourite wine bar in Paris was and said why do you want to do this, why do you love these sorts of wines and so we, we spoke for about half an hour and then I began work essentially the next day. And we, at that stage, there was not a drop of alcohol in the entire venue, and we had to open in two weeks. Um, but I got the job here because of my interest in it. Right, okay. So from, from the word go, the focus of this building was always going uh, to be delicious food and, and lots of natural wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that focus has increased uh, as time, as, as the last three years have gone past. Did you find it challenging to begin with? As far as kind of educating the, the consumers and edu- educating other people uh, within began, the industry? It began slowly. Sure. And when we first opened in 2012, I was very much aware that there's no way we could only sell unfiltered wine with no sulfur in this venue. Sure. Um, but there's a lot more of it now than there was. Mm-hmm. I mean, even locally. Yeah. Produced stuff. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And that's another good point. I'm selling... It makes me very happy about this as well, but I'm selling much more local wine now than I was in 2012 Yeah, for that exact reason. Yeah. Do you like the sort of the community around wines of this kind? It's amazing. Like, it's it's fascinating. And not not just here, but whether you're talking to people in Copenhagen, in Tokyo, in Paris, and, and especially now... Yeah, exactly. And But especially now with the internet as well, like, it makes it a really small community. Um, it makes it a small world, I should say. Do you like the democratic nature of it as well? Yeah, I love it. And it's about people enjoying themselves and having a great time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a group of very, very, very enthusiastic people Mm. and and motivated people. It's awesome. And whether whether it's a producer in the Auvergne or a sommelier in Copenhagen, it's a group of people who really want to work together, Mm -hmm. who love each other's work. Mm -hmm. And very, very, very enthusiastic about not just uh, speaking about this, but this is what we do at home. Like it's a group of people who believe firmly in what they're talking about, very, very, very firmly. And do you feel that it really does go hand in hand with the kind of food that? that oh, it makes total sense. Like for me, would... it's uh, when you look at how, how how digestible sour beer is, and then kimchi, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and when you have the right combination of dishes on a plate and to see how satisfying this can be. Mm. For me, it makes more sense to have a beverage that actually is alive as well. 
Sure. It makes less sense for me to have something that's bound by sulfur in terms of food and wine harmony. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes le less sense for me to have something with all of its volatility and molecules bound together with a preservative because it just doesn't go as well with food. Sure. And this is something that I've learned over time mm -hmm. and eating in some really, really, really great restaurants. Uh, like Chateaubriand, I had an extraordinary experience at in a couple of years ago for this exact reason. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at the harmony and watching uh, textures of compounds relax on the palate and, and, and really harmonize, it's more difficult to do it if the wine has a lot of sulfur in it. Sure. It's just, it doesn't go as well. Mm. Um, I have a lot of fun with Josh. Uh, he's incredibly perceptive and believes in this exact thing just as much as I do mm. when it comes to making harmony on the plate. Mm. And when it comes to presenting a combination of things that really makes the diner like drop the knife and fork and go, oh my God, those things are delicious together. And I didn't, before we opened, I didn't necessarily think that that was something that you could achieve all the time. Mm. Uh, I don't mean 10 times out of 10. But, yeah, after this particular dish that I had at Chateaubriand, it was a dish of, uh, well, he poured the wine for me first, and it was the Contadino from Frank Cornelison, but he served it cold, like like straight out of the fridge. And he's, I said, oh, thanks. I, yeah, great. And he was explaining the wine. I said, yeah, I've, I've, I've tasted the wine before. It's delicious, fantastic. And anyway, I started warming it up when he walked away in my hands, and he came back a couple of minutes later and, he, and said, uh, I'd prefer it if you didn't warm the wine up. And I, afterwards, I, yeah, I couldn't believe what I'd said, but I said, oh, it's okay. I've tasted it before. I, I know the wine. And he said, I know you know the wine, but it's supposed to be cold. And I went, okay, cool. And he walked away again. But he, he had served it so cold that I continued to warm it up just a bit more. Mm. And he came back a second time and said, I know you know this wine, but it's cold to go with the dish. He said, the alcohol will come out of the wine more, which I don't want for this particular dish, and you'll enjoy it more if you just leave it alone and have it at the temperature that we're served it at. He could have said uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay, cool. Uh, anyway, then the dish came out, but it was essentially almost unripe red and green tomatoes. Mm-hmm crumbled goat's cheese and green herbs. It was an acidic dish. Wow. And it was chilled as well. Yeah. So cold, cold, acidic tomato. Uh, but to have it with that vintage of the Contadino from Frank Cornelison at that temperature, and that wine was very lightly acetic uh, and obviously very much alive, to have that mix of chilled red wine with that combination of acidity was one of the most incredible things I've ever, ever, ever eaten. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll never, ever, ever forget it. Mm -hmm. I had to call him over and I said, like, I need you to understand just how much I've enjoyed this. This is... F I didn't know that food and wine could ever go to well go together as well as this. It was mind-blowing. Mm. I, did, I, did, like, I didn't know at that stage just how good it can be. Mm. And I have been determined since then in Murnard Water to... I want every diner to have an experience like that. Sure. And you, um, when, when did you sort of start to think about, you know, finding some wines to bring in yourself? Uh, I've wanted to do that for a long time. Sure. Um, uh, certainly a few years. I'd, like, it's been on my mind for probably five years. But I didn't know from the word go how to find something um, that someone else hadn't already seen necessarily. But I did vintage in 2011 in Burgundy, and you do networking, of course, uh, and you meet lots of people. Um, it's the same thing. And then I went back in 2012 to the Loire Valley and worked with some great people uh, in Amboise, and again, met more people. And, went, and then Charlotte and I went in 2012 uh, again to the Loire Valley and worked with a, a very famous and amazing grower. But I discovered a little under, underground network of growers, and I just started looking in the right places basically, for these people that don't have websites, don't really have email addresses, mm -hmm. um, and they're certainly out there. Do you feel but, a bit like Kermit Lynch way back in the you know, <laughs> 40, 40 years ago, just, you know, word of mouth, driving around, just knocking on the door? Yeah, he did an amazing job, and he is doing an amazing job. Um, uh, it's very, very, very exciting to find someone and then see that the wine's not even being sold in Paris yet. 
because the grow is just so small. Mm. And then to send them an email and to get a reply a few days later and say, and there's a, there's a wonderful culture I find because I've done this now more in France than I have anywhere else. There's a wonderful culture of being of, of hospitality, sharing information, and people being very happy for you to come to their winery, look at the vines first of all, and then go and taste a few things. And uh, I was blown away by the kindness that I saw when mm. I first started having proper appointments like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, 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 very good fun. It's, a, it's amazing fun. It's, it's hard to have an appointment with someone and then not like the wines enough to develop a relationship there. Mm. It's, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. But when you find someone that you've either known about beforehand or who you've discovered now for the first time and you're blown, about, blown away by the wines and by the agriculture, it's, it's unbelievably rewarding. But then I'm, I'm sure that that has a huge impact on you, you know, introducing people to the wines back here. Um, yeah. You know, other other sort of people in the industry and consumers and lovers of, of you know authentic wine like this. I'm sure it's just such a thrill to have actually because you know, I had that experience. You know, when I went to to Italy mm. and visited some of the producers that I work with and kind of saw them and went and just fell in love and and came back with just so much more energy and you know and I'm sure that's kind of you know one of the big ideas behind this this upcoming event that you you're running with that with Giorgio and Josh um, Sulfur. Yeah, this um, uh, yes, it's amazing to bring something back and show it to a wine bar or a restaurant owner uh, and see them really enjoy it. It's of course it's an amazing feeling. I'm it's uh, it's interesting having stock sitting in Australia. Uh, I have, that I have zero reservations about in terms of its quality. I'm so unbelievably proud of what I've got here and what I've got coming. Mm-hmm. It's it's a thrill to be able to show it to people. Sure. What um what in, in terms of the event that's coming up, what I'm aware of now is that until I'd until I'd done vintage with Claude Courtois uh, with Charlotte in 2013, I'd never gone for a long extended period. Of drinking wine with zero sulfur, mm-hmm. like day after day after day after day, and having half a glass of wine at lunchtime and then a few glasses of wine at night with dinner, and spending the entire time feeling more or less unaffected by alcohol. Mm. And lots of people in Australia haven't had the chance to do that. Uh, and so these, like, this is a set of flavors um, and aromas that most people haven't experienced that many times. Uh, and Giorgio and I have been lucky to have done that. He and I drink a lot of the same sorts of wines, sure, and, and we love the same sorts of wines. In terms, of when when it comes to whether we like a wine or, or dislike a wine, we agree ninety nine times out of a hundred. Um, but we're well, well, well aware of the fact that if you do spend two weeks, three weeks, or a month without touching a drop of sulphur, you don't want to go back. It's just a reality, mm-hmm. and so. It's important to us now to do as much work as we possibly can to allow people to have the same exposure. It's really important. Sure. Because it's not something that's going to just happen on its own. No. Um, A, and going back to the conversation that we said, you know, about traditional wine styles earlier on, it'll be up to people like us now to bring more of these wines into a country, into the country so that they are more available. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't do it if we didn't... Like, it's not as if we're making financial decisions. We do this because we are so in love with the whole thing. It's what, like it's what we're doing with our lives. Um, uh, but it has to sort of start and we have to do more of it and we have to make it so that there's a really high-quality wine with no sulfur sitting on the shelf at more retailers mm. so that more people can just take them off the shelf whenever they want mm. and people can take them home. And it's undeniable that when a wine like this hits your palate and it's good quality... Your palate relaxes more, and immediately you think, "My body just has to drink this." Yeah, but uh, it ex- ex- accepts it. Um, but I'm, I'm sure sense. that yeah, absolutely. And and you know whether they are already winemakers or whether they're just in in the industry, and then they will start making wine at some point in the future. It, it must be also great to be introducing um, winemakers to more of these kinds of wines to totally. kind of change the way they think about making wines in Australia. Absolutely. It's, um, 
there's a there's a few winemakers here who have been aware of this sort of thing for a lot longer than I have as well. Yeah. Um, William Downey, for example, loves this sort of wine. Um, and he's a great person to speak to to talk about uh, the benefits of organic and biodiverse agriculture. Because mm-hmm. he went and spent some time with Pierre Auvenoir. Uh And he brought that Mac van to... Uh, yeah. Was it, was it Mac van that he, he brought to, exactly. to lunch just before Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So he's a great example. Pat Sullivan's another great example of a local winemaker who does a lot of research, has mm-hmm. been drinking wines like this, mm-hmm. uh, like Bill has for a long time. Um, and there's, you know, there's a host of other winemakers that we're all aware of who really, really, really love this style of wine as well. Yeah. Um, and some of them are going to be exhibiting their, their wines at the, the events. Exactly. As well as, well, yep. as, as, well as having the opportunity to, t- to taste yep. some wines from, from Europe. So there'll be Anton from Lucy Margot, Tom Shobrook, Joel Amos, uh, C. Vintners, Owen Latter, James Erskine, Jared Kerwood. I hope I'm not missing anyone. Um, all showing wines. Mm. And these, like, I speak to Anton at least once a fortnight so we can talk about a wine that we've just consumed that has no sulfur because we just love it so, so, so much. Yep. Yeah, and again, there's a sense of vibrancy and there's a sense of you being nourished to the point when you drink a great wine like this that you have to pick up the phone and call someone and tell them about it. Sure. Like, we speak to each other a lot. Sure. If I haven't, and again, if I have something astonishing, then I'll call Pat, I'll call Tom, and I'll call Anton and say, have you guys tasted this because it's blowing me away? Yeah. And if you haven't tasted it, you need to. You need yep. to go down to the shop and get a bottle. Mm. And again, it's a long conversation that I've had with Giorgio time and time again, but it's not like we want to... It's, I would feel unreasonable saying that I want Australian winemakers to do things differently. Mm. Uh, I'd feel very unreasonable saying that. But anyone who wants to make wine like this, and especially with organic ag- agriculture, yep. will have my support forever. Well... Um- Listeners, if you are interested in um, some of the people that uh, Campbell has just mentioned, um, go back and listen to the episode of the Vincast with Bill Downey, um, with Ivo Yakimovitz, listen to the one with Giorgio. Um, if you didn't already um, listen to the one with, uh, with Morgie, um, he obviously also mentioned the, uh, the Sulphur event, which is on the 5th of July, exactly. which just happens to be my birthday. <laughs> So it's very, it's very nice of you guys to throw me a birthday party. With pleasure. <laughs> but um, the, the website where you can find out more information and secure some tickets if there are still some available is... Yeah, there's still, there's still some there. It's Solve That's Solfor, S-O-U-L-F-O-R.com.au. Yes. And I think there are some... There's social media accounts that are set up, but, you know, it's definitely worth... There's an Instagram account, which is simply Solfor Wine. Yep. Yeah, we and there's been some lovely articles written about it uh, as well. So go and go and do some more reading. But uh, if 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 people wanted to follow you on social media, if you want people to follow you, um, what would Um, your accounts be? uh, There's an Instagram account which is Campbell Thomas Burton. Yep. Uh, But there's not Twitter or. um, (laughs) But definitely, and and obviously, come in uh, and and. Try Josh's food. Josh, obviously, you know, there's going to be some chefs at Sulphur as well. Some of, some of Australia's best chefs. Um, certainly some of our favourite chefs. And again, it's no mistake that these chefs... Uh, Love these kind of wines as well. Oh, this is... Yeah, it's another conversation altogether. But <laughs> to see the excitement that chefs now have about wine... Yeah. And if you compare it traditionally to, say, even... There was hardly a chef that I could speak to in Australia five years ago that was hyper-interested in wine. Mm. And now if you speak to... Had more than a basic knowledge of wine. Exactly. Now if you speak to uh, Luke Burgess, Dave Moyle, Morgan, Josh, Matt Lindsay, Mm. and not just these guys but other chefs as well, there is a genuine, genuine, genuine love of natural wine amongst these guys. It's very real. And I remember the first time when Dave Moyle came to help us here at the Builder's Arms when we opened Moon Underwater, I was blown away by his wine knowledge, which is almost encyclopedic. He knows as much as most sommeliers in Australia. Yeah. And I didn't know that any chefs had this much interest. But then when, and again, when you look at the beautiful chef who's making an extraordinary dish and seeing just how great it can be when you've got living wine to serve beside it, Mm. 
this is why chefs are interested because mm. these are because the wines are delicious and yeah. and again like it's it's all very well for me to call Anton if I find something really delicious but I'm just as likely to call Dave Moyle and say have you tasted this wine because you need to mm. Morgan's the same Luke Burgess is the same uh, and then, of course, the importers are the same, you know, because it's precisely. not just about bringing in the wine. You know, they, they're going out and precisely. going to, eating at these amazing places as well. Yeah. You know, like Sue and Roger down in, down in Tassie with Living Wines. Yeah. Uh, or Food Tourist, you know, yeah. aptly named because they're traveling all the time. They're going over to Europe and they're eating yeah. at wonderful places and they kind of have that understanding of, of how important it is to have the right food and the right wine. Yeah. You know, and, and then they're, they're communicating with each other to heighten that experience. But uh, guys, definitely uh, get involved with Sulphur, uh, get involved with Sulphur Free Wines. Um, and uh, thank you very much, Campbell, for your time today. Thank and you very obviously, much. I look forward to, uh, to having a, a fantastic day on the 5th. It's going to be extraordinary. It's going to be an amazing day. Thanks, James. Cheers. And thank you very much for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. And as always, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Intrepid Wino and the podcast at The Vincast on Twitter. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino is where you'll find my Facebook page. And if you put in Intrepid Wino into YouTube, you'll find my YouTube channel where I'm going to be uploading some more videos very soon. Uh, if you come to IntrepidWino.com, you'll not only find every episode of the Vincast, but also a lot of different writings uh, that I've done in the past as well. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or any of your other uh, podcasting apps, uh, and uh, that way you can download the uh, newest episodes and listen to them at your leisure. Uh, if you do that, please do leave a rating and a review, because it really does help me out, uh, and I'd love to get some feedback question for this week is what is your favorite natural wine or the what's the best natural wine you've ever tasted and tell me what the context was uh, please enjoy this episode let me know and let campbell know if you did enjoy it but until next time bye